before coming to Village Bible Church, I was pastor at West Lisbon Church, formerly West Lisbon Lutheran Church, that's uh, down uh, south of Newark a little bit. And so I was out in the country, country church, and loved that time. And then I heard that there was another Lombardo who was a preacher here, had a bad reputation. And uh, yeah, I heard that, and heard that at Barn Bash. And so I want to assure you there's no relation. I have no relation to the, any Lombardos that were here, okay? So you can rest assured, take a deep breath. There's no relation. I might be related to Al Capone, but that's a different story. Um, but not to any former pastor here. So uh, you can uh, open up your ears and uh, ask, we're going to ask the Lord right now that he would uh, be our teacher this morning. God, we give you thanks today. Thank you for the, the, the songs that we, we sang to you and to your praise and glory. Uh, for the scripture that was read, Lord, that you would uh, help us to be men and women after your own heart that would cast off sin. And even in this culture that we live in, in the nation that we live in, we find sin all over, Lord, that we would uh, cast it off and seek you and pursue godliness and holiness. Lord, thank you for the, the, the community prayer that we had with Bill led, Lord, and we uh, thank you for this uh, special time. God, I ask that you would be our teacher this morning, and you know that I got nothing in myself, Lord, so Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd come and you'd teach us exactly what it is you would have us to know today, and that you would change us uh, for your glory and for our good. We humbly ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Samuel chapter 8, we're in a series here at Village Bible Church entitled Shattered. We're looking at the book of 1 Samuel. We're seeing all of the, the hard things that, uh, that has happened to people in 1 Samuel. Uh, when life goes to pieces is really is what happened to Hannah. Uh, you remember uh, with Hannah and her son, eventually being born Samuel, but the hardship that she had to go through, there's a, there's a hardship to life that is a reality. And if you run into anybody who uh, claims to be a Christian and they tell you, just come to Jesus Christ and everything will be fine. Have faith in God and he'll make your life good. Give unto God and his work and he'll give unto you abundantly. I would just say this, there's a general principle in God's word that if you honor God, he will honor you. But there's also the reality that we live in a sinful place that is broken. It's messed up. And you are, if you live for any period of time, you are going to experience the pain and hardship of life. And so what do you do when that happens? That's what we're looking at. Shattered lives. God takes the pieces of our broken lives and he puts it together in such a way that is glorious, but we have to still go through those hard times. In 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8, we have the story of the nation of Israel, and they want to have a king. And we're going to read the, the chapter here, but then we're going to go to Daniel. Um, because uh, for this morning, I want to see how this brokenness in 1 Samuel 8, what the nation of Israel does, has a lasting impact all the way to the time of Daniel, so that uh, the people of Israel, they not only lose to the Philistines in wars, but uh, eventually uh, they lose to the Babylonians as the Babylonian captivity takes place over the nation of Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 8. You got your Bibles? Let's start at verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, 
The name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Does that sound familiar? If you've been part of 1 Samuel, whose uh, other sons did the same thing? Eli and his sons did the same thing. So Samuel's sons, perverting justice, verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. Now, take note that uh, this was partly a good request, wasn't it, from the nation of Israel? Because they see Samuel's sons, they're rotten kids. They're not kids, they're grown now, but they're, they're not following in Samuel's ways. They're not walking with the Lord. They're not judging God's people correctly. So, in some ways, this was a decent request. Give us a king that will lead us because your sons aren't doing a good job. Verse 6. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from this day, uh, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them, will do. There's going to be consequences if you get a king, Israel. Your king is God's. This is a theocracy, the nation of Israel. God is their king. But now they want a man king. They want a king that they can see and physically touch and hear and talk to. But there's going to be consequences, verse 10. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. They will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipments for chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and maid servants and the best of your cattle, donkeys he will use for his own use, and he will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. There's consequences for this request. This is the reality of the world in the ancient Near East land. A king is going to come, he's going to have some requests. He's going to take your sons and daughters. He's going to do what he wants. He's going to tax you. He's going to work you. So what do the people do? Do they say, oh, we don't want him anymore? Verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone go back to his own town. So Israel wants a king, and they get one. The first king is going to be uh, a man by the name of King Saul. Good. And he's going to come. 
And this forever change is really the course of the, of the history of the nation of Israel. And we're going to go to Daniel chapter 1 now. We're going to bounce out of that to, to, the, to really the place where it's going to lead in Daniel chapter 1. To the Babylonian captivity. The bad choice, the bad decision, leads to bad culture, to a bad nation. A shattered nation, a broken nation. And we're going to look at that in Daniel chapter 1. But let me ask you a question for today. How bad is our culture? How bad is our nation? How bad is the land that we live in? Let me give you three, three D's, okay? Uh, at Village, pastors like to use same letters, so I'm going to try to do the same thing. Three D's, right? Number one, how bad is our culture? Number one, there's destruction, destruction of the family. Destruction of the family. You start with abortion. You can start with the Planned Parenthood videos that come out and showed little babies' body parts being harvested and sold for profit. You can see a fully formed baby, not a fetus. Don't try to use a term that doesn't make it more palatable. A little baby dead, dying on a table. Redefinition of marriage. Marriage is no longer between a man and a woman. It's really however you want to define it. We can start with guy and guy and girl and girl, but then we can probably go to multiple guys and multiple girls. It's just up for grabs. A redefinition of marriage in our culture, in our nation. It's a shattered nation. Postmodernism is in today. Postmodernism says that you can't know any truth. That there's nothing really uh, absolute. It's just whatever you decide. So whatever you choose is fine. It might not be fine for you, but you can choose your own way. You can choose your other way. And everything is up for grabs. There is no absolute truth. However, that claim in and of itself goes against postmodernism. When you say there's no absolute truth, you are making a truth claim. And so the only absolute truth that is not given any credence in our postmodern society is Christianity. Oh, don't judge me. Don't you say anything about truth. There is no such thing as truth. Just whatever I deem is good for me. Destruction of the family. Number two, how bad is our culture? There's despair all over the place. Despair. From work, the unemployment rate, our economy's not doing the best, to say the least, to personal life, People are filled with despair. Suicide is rampant. Among people ages 18 to 25, suicide is the number one killer. I remember some years ago doing the funeral of a 16-year-old boy who killed himself. He killed himself because his girlfriend had broken up with him. And at the funeral home, meeting with the parents and the family, and then off to the side, I had some time with the funeral director. And I asked him about what had happened. And in my mind, I was trying to make the best of it, that maybe this kid, he felt bad, and he wanted to send a message to this girl and wanted to make it seem like he attempted to take his life just to get it, a message to her that how much she had hurt him and maybe he didn't really intend to do it, but it ended up happening. That's what I was hoping, hoping for. And I asked the funeral director, is that possibly what happened, that he 
was trying to send a message, but he accidentally killed himself. And uh, they, he said no. Um, he had attempted several times to hang himself. And then he finally did it. He found the other evidence of ways that he had tried to kill himself. Despair. Our country, our nation is shattered and broken. And people, maybe even you today, are filled with despair. No hope. How bad is our culture? Number three, there's distorted views of reality. Distorted views of reality. Our reality is the Kardashians on TV. Kim Kardashian, who is world famous and rich beyond imagination, whose only claim to fame fame is making a sex video with her boyfriend. That's the country we live in today. Caitlyn Jenner, Bruce Jenner, Olympic athlete who now finds that he's best as Caitlyn. There's wars. There's the rise of ISIS. There's Christians getting their heads cut off every day. The world that we live in is sick and it's shattered. And it's sick because of sin. Because of sin. Now, in our story this morning, Daniel and his friends find themselves right in the midst of the same thing. Okay, so we're going to find some hope here today. That's my prayer. We're going to find some hope and see how they respond to to the situation that they find themselves in. Daniel chapter 1. Do you got your Bibles? You got Daniel chapter 1? Here we go. I'm going to give you three things that we must do from the example of Daniel and his friends, three things that we must do as we lived in the shattered nation. Daniel 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Joachim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of, his, uh, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles of the temple of God those he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Babylon was the dominant world power in this 6th century B.C. They had conquered the entire known world. There was no power like the Assyrians, like the Babylonians. They, They conquered nations with the strength of their army and their might, the might of their hand. And they were ruthless. And they would conquer a city. They besieged, we read right here, they besieged Jerusalem. So what they did is they surrounded Jerusalem. They cut off all food. They cut off any supplies coming to the city. And and until the time was right, then they went in and wiped them out and killed them. And then they would cut the heads off of the people and put them on stakes and surround the city so that anybody would come and see a city with a bunch of heads around the whole city, they would say, the Babylonians are here, they're bad people, don't mess with Babylon. But they weren't just brutes. They weren't just crazed killers. There was a method behind their madness that made them the most powerful nation on the planet. And here's what it is, right here, verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites 
from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief officials gave them new names, to Daniel, Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So here's what happened. You Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You recognize their names, right? Isn't it interesting that we see the name Daniel? We know him by his Hebrew name, but we know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by their Assyrian, their Babylonian name that was given to them. Isn't that interesting? Why is that? I don't know either. I didn't have time to research it, but it's interesting. And so what they would do, Babylon would come and they would take over a country. They'd kill most of the people. They'd wipe out the nation, but then they'd take the best and the brightest that were still alive. You see that the noble, noble uh, kids that were still there, probably 15, 16, 17, 18, bring them to the king's palace and train them, brainwash them, and change them into a Babylonian. And then they would serve in the king's palace. They would get immersed in the culture of the Babylonians. And then they would be sent back to their homeland, not as Jews any longer, but as Babylonians. And so then that place becomes Babylon's place. That's why they were so good. So it wasn't just that they were brutal. It's because they had a method to program people, indigenous people, and put them back into their homeland as Babylonians. So this is happening now to Daniel and his friends. And so we must, if we're going to live, we're in the same place. We live in a society all around that is seeking to conform us into its image, not into the image of Jesus. The world all around you is conforming you into its shape. And so we must, living in the Saturn nation, we must, number one, here's number one, we must live with discernment. Live with discernment. Daniel and his friends, man, they were challenged in these different ways. They were challenged in three different ways. Let me give you the first one. They were challenged with their ideology. Ideology. You see that in the text, verse 3 and 4. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. So there's an ideology there. No longer are you going to learn Hebrew. You're going to learn our language. No longer are you going to learn the history according to God's word and the history of the world, Genesis and beyond. You're going to learn our history. You're going to not learn about the nation of Israel and, and where you guys are all come from, you're going to learn what we think about the nation of Israel, which is not much. We think more about this glorious Babylonian empire. The language and literature, their ideology was going to be changed. Secondly, they were challenged in the area of idolatry. Idolatry. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And you say, how is that idolatry? Food and wine from the king's table. It's because the food that the king would eat, the king of Babylon, was the choicest food 
that was sacrificed to their pagan gods. And so all of the food that was sacrificed, the best of the best that was brought into the temple, that was sacrificed unto the god of Babylon, that food was then given to the king's palace. And that food is what they ate. And that was idolatry. It was wrong for an Israelite to partake in food that had been sacrificed to idols. That, that is what the law of God said. So they were challenged in idolatry. Thirdly, identity. They had to live with discernment concerning their identity. You see that they got the new names, right? So if you change somebody's name, you can change everything. You can think, they think that you can change everything about somebody. I'll give you a new name. Give you a new name and change your identity. Now, that's all around them. You see, th- this is happening to them. And in the same way, we live in this place. And we have to, we must live with discernment. We're impacted so much uh, by the culture around us. Let me, let me test you out, okay? Let me test. Um, see if you can finish uh, this commercial song, okay? <clears throat> United Auto Insurance, 773202-5000. We got you covered. Yes, one worldly person right here. Who's in, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's right, but everybody knows 5882300. Empire, see, uh, this stupid jingles, we, but see, everything's programming us. From the TV to the computer to the, to the telephone, I, I was told to check in here on Facebook. I did that when we were singing, so it took me out of my worship, but I checked in at least. Facebook, what are you up to today? What's your status? People want to know what you're doing. Tweet, what'd you tweet about? You tweeted you had a new toothbrush. Oh, great. That's good. It's all about ourselves. It's who we are, what we say, where we're going. Our world is conforming us to the pattern of this world. Paul writes to the Romans, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, Romans chapter 12. Hmm. We have to live with discernment for our kids, for our families, for our grandkids. For We are under 24-7 bombardment from the enemy of our souls through the country that we live in, the nation that we live in, the culture that we find ourselves in. I love America. I have a grandpa who fought in World War II. My brother, Navy SEAL, fought in Iraq War. I love America, but we fool ourselves if we think that we're surrounded by Christian things that are going to build us up in our faith. When all the while, most of the stuff around us is junk from the pit of hell. So we must live with discernment. Discernment. Daniel's friends had to. They had to live with discernment. And number two, we must live with determination. Determination. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in that way. So Daniel lived with discernment, and then when he discerned what was most important, he was determined to do the right thing. 
So he, he lived with determination, and he said, you know what? The ideology, the language and literature, okay, I'll learn it. I can do it. You want to change my name? That's fine. Do it. But the idolatry, I can't go along with idolatry because that is what my God, the creator of heaven and earth, says is wrong. There's no other gods before Yahweh. And so I cannot go along with eating at the king's table. So he's determined. I have the NIV, it says resolved. You might have another word there, but he, he was resolved, he was determined to not go along with it. So Romans 12, 1 and 2, is lived out by Daniel. Some 700 years, 600, 700 years before it was written by Paul, he lived it out. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to live with the determination in the world that we find ourselves in. Now, we are to obey our governing authorities. Romans 13 says that we must submit to our government, that they're placed in power by God himself uh, for our safety, for our good, for our care and keeping, for protection. So we obey government. But then, if government asks us to do something that is against God and contrary to his word, then we must agree with the disciples. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. In that story in Acts chapter 5, the disciples are arrested for preaching in the name of Jesus. The religious authorities hate the name of Jesus. They can't even say, you read in the text, they can't even say the name of Jesus. They, they command them, stop preaching in that name. They don't even say Jesus. They can't bring themselves to it. Stop preaching that name. They get arrested, thrown in jail, in prison, but they're miraculously let out. An angel, God sends an angel to, to free them. And the first thing they do, they walk out of the jail, and they go right back to the courtyard and start preaching in the name of Jesus. And so they get called back again, the authorities say, didn't we tell you not to do this? What are you doing? And Peter says, on behalf of all of the disciples, the apostles, he says, we must obey God rather than men. So too we, Daniel as well, that we would live in determined nation to do what God would have us to do. So we live with discernment. We live with determination. And then thirdly, we live with dedication dedication. So Daniel's resolve not to eat the food, okay? Verse 9, now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men their age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard who the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. And treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. So they said, you know what? We're not going to eat from the king's table. Give us vegetables and give us water. How many people have ever been on a diet? Vegetables and water for 10 days. Now that takes dedication, doesn't it? And they had it, and they did it. They, they followed through. And the rest of the story plays out like this. At the end of the 10 days, verse 
15, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables and said to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah until they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Man, they had an impact on the pagan culture that they found themselves in. Here these three were found to be better than the others. Here Daniel ended up being the right-hand man of King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on the planet. And who's in his ear? Daniel, God's man. We, if we live with discernment, if we live with determination, and then we're dedicated to that decision that is made, we can have an impact on the world in which we live. See, this is what it's like to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian. We're not just a Christian to live in a hole somewhere, to back out of society. We're a Christian called to let our light shine and to be salt and light in the world that God places us in. And when we do that, we begin to change. God does it, but we get to be part of it. God begins to change people around us. And he gives us impact into his kingdom. Just think that people could come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior through you. People's families could be healed. Marriages could come together because of you. Now it's God's work, but God uses you. You're God's hands and feet. That people, their precious souls, would be saved for all eternity because you shared the gospel with them. Blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news. The way that the gospel message goes forth is through God's people. You can make a difference. So we must live with discernment, live with determination, live with dedication. Amen? Amen. Now, as we begin to land the plane here and close, this type of message can lead to something that Reformed preachers have called um, moralistic deism. Moralistic deism. If we just hear this and we hear, I must be more discerning, I got to be more determined, I got to work harder, I got to be dedicated. If we just hear this, it could lead us to this practice of religion, moralistic deism, was that I do the right things. If I work hard enough, God will be behind me. God's out there somewhere, but as long as I Uh, dot the I's and cross the T's and follow the lists and the rules and regulations, God will be on my side. That's a form of moralistic deism. It's a practice of religion. We're going to lose out because we circumvent the gospel and God's grace. So while it is vital and essential that we do live with discernment and determination and dedication, we must not for a moment think that our salvation is based on our ability to do those things. Okay, so I have a ladder here. Tyrus, you want to help me? Thanks, buddy. Get that. 
I'll set it up right here. Thank you. Pull out some more. So here's a little illustration of what I'm talking about. Religion. If we just hear this, and we're going to try to keep these things, we're going to be religious. Religion says this. We're all down here. God's up there. So, we must do some things to get up there to God. To make God accept us. And so, I'm going to keep the rules. Okay? I'm going to say the right prayers. I'm going to go to church. Uh, I'm going to maybe read the Bible. I might do some other things, but I'm kind of scared up here. I'm not going to go any higher. But when we're up here, and we practice religion... Here's the problem. We practice religion, it can lead to two different places. It can first lead to pride, right? Because look, I'm up here, you're all down there. Look at me. I'm godly. I can keep the rules. I can do what's right. I'm a pretty organized person. I, I, can, I, can, I got a list of stuff that I can cross it off. I can get it done. Man, I'm pretty good in my relationship with God. It's not a relationship at all. It's religion. The other place that it can lead to is despair. Because I, I might not be that good at climbing the ladder and doing the things. I find myself failing more often than not. When I go to church, I feel guilty. And I feel like the, the pastor's speaking to me and I haven't been able to be a Christian. I'm not a good Christian. And then just forget the whole thing. That's despair that can come. Because you're trying to practice religion. You're trying to walk the ladder. And the gospel isn't the latter. The gospel is that God loves us so much that he came into the world as Jesus Christ to go to the cross for us and for our sin. He died on the cross for our sin so that if you would believe in him, you wouldn't perish, but you'd have eternal life. That means that your sins would be forgiven because he paid for them on the cross. His blood was shed for you. But then not only are your sins forgiven, Jesus' own righteousness is given to you so that his righteousness now is on your life. So that you die and stand before God. And he's holy and righteous and he's, he's not safe. You're right, he's good, but he's not safe. He is powerful and he is awesome and he is terrible and holy. But you would stand before him, he wouldn't see your sin. He'd see Jesus' own righteousness. And he'd welcome you in with open arms because he sees the righteousness of his son. That's the gospel. And we do anything else, we enter into religion. So please, let us all be encouraged today to live with discernment, to be determined to do the right thing, and then keep dedicated, be dedicated to the mission and the call of our life. But let's not mistake what the gospel is. You know, when Ty started to walk, it was fun to watch him. He'd get up on the side of the coffee table eventually and then use it a little bit. And then one day, one day he turned and started to walk and the weight of his giant head tilted him <laughs> forward. And the only way he could keep going was to put that other leg in front. And he did a few steps and we all cheered and he fell down. Now, what do you think he, I did when he fell down? Did I go up to him and say, Hey, get up. You should be walking already. You're one year old. You should be doing more steps than that. Get up. Let's go. No, I helped him up. 
said, you can go a little further this time. That's our Heavenly Father. He runs to sinners. He runs to the prodigal child. And when you fall, and when you're failed, and when you're not discerning, and when you're not determined or dedicated, and when you fall flat on your face, he's not there to condemn you, but because of Jesus Christ, he's there to help you up so you can go a little farther next time. That's the God we serve. Isn't he good? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We don't deserve it, yet we are so thankful for it. I pray, Lord, that we would be renewed in our faith this morning through the gospel, your good news. Lord, that we would, if we haven't come to you by faith, even in this moment, we would say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. Forgive me for my sin. Come into my life. Make me a new person. I want to live for you. And thank you, God, that you give us the strength. Help us, Lord, all of us here, whether long-time Christians or short-time, to be living with discernment and determination, the choices that we make, knowing that culture all around us is, is shaping us and battling us. Give us the strength then to be dedicated to your call in our life that we might not only be saved ourselves, but we would deliver the message to others. And Jesus, it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.